morning. Our reading this morning is Psalm 93, found on page 498 in the Black Bibles, Psalm 193. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. My name is Ryan Phelps. I serve here as lead pastor. It is really good to be with you today. Before we get to our uh, sermon, we're in a series on the Psalms. Before we get to that, just very quickly about our uh, building and our update. As, as many of you know, we are in the process to determine if 25 Orchard Hill Road is going to be the future and permanent home of Grace Point Community Church. There's a lot going on with it, lots of things swirling around. I cannot keep my head around all of them. That's why I have other good people around me to help. Uh, but do pray for that. Uh, pray that things in the next couple of weeks go smoothly. We need to get some good answers back from contractors, from architects, from the town. We have a meeting with the town, a, a big meeting that you can be praying for on August 15th. And then you need to know, especially members of this church need to know, that we are going to meet Thursday night, August 17th at 6 p.m. in this building to vote on moving forward. It will be the end of our first due diligence period but it's, a, it's a, a vital moment for our church because we will be entering into some debt, possibly. You will get to see all the, the plans, the layout, the design, what the parking is going to be like, what we hope to do in the facility. And so that is a, a, a date on which I hope you can attend. Even if you're not a member, please come out to see it. And do be looking in the next couple of weeks for a, a document that we're, we're going to put everything out so you can see it, so you can be praying through it, so that you can vote well. Again, if you have any questions about any of this, please come and talk to me. Come talk to Tim Adler, uh, Joe Wilkinson in the back, George Hagianis, who's not up here. I don't see him right now. We would be happy to answer any questions if we have the answers. We still don't know a lot of answers. Anyway, let us uh, now go to the Word and to see the Lord clearly. Let's pray before we do so. I thank you for your glory, for your great majesty and might. You are the light we have followed into this building. And we've seen with our eyes that we've especially seen with our hearts. And maybe those who didn't even know it, that they were following you into, into this place, that we may stand under your preached word, me included. God, now would you be with us. Would we become one in a, in a way with the psalmist, speak his words, pray this prayer, believe these things. We ask in Jesus' name by the work of the Spirit, amen. What is the most important thing about you? If someone came up to you, maybe it's in a job interview, maybe your kids asked you, a relative, they said, what is the most important thing? Thing about you? What would you say? Maybe you would say your career. Maybe you would say it's your kids. My kids are the most important part of me. Something else. Half century ago, a guy named A.W. Tozer, pastor, he said there is only one thing 
that actually shapes your life. More than all the other things, there is one thing that shapes your life. The most important thing about you is not ultimately your intelligence, your looks, your career, your social status, your personality, your family, your wealth. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. I'll let him talk. A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he is in his heart conceives God to be like. Were we able to extract from any man or woman a complete answer to the question, what comes to your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certain the spiritual future of that man. What is the most, what is the thing that comes to your mind when you think about God? That is what he says determines your spiritual future. Now this should not totally surprise us. Because in our relationships, it's, it's actually somewhat similar. It's not just the vertical, it's the horizontal. When we think, what we think of our spouses, our kids, our siblings, or someone else, anyone else, it will predict what our relationship will be like with them. If you honor and respect and adore your wife, your husband, I think we can know how that, that relationship is going to go. Or if you don't, you don't honor them and respect them and adore them. It might go a different way. If you see your kids as incredible gifts and blessings, I think we can know how you will treat them for the most part. And if you don't, if you do not see them as gifts, as blessings, you might go another way. But that does not ultimately determine your spiritual outcome. Your spiritual outcome is determined by your relationship with God, but more importantly, by what you think of Him. If God is real, if God is truly creator, sustainer, and glorified Lord, then our thoughts about Him will matter the most. They will determine our spiritual outcomes. If you see God as one thing or another, if you know Him to be this way or that way, this will have a massive impact on how you live. If God to you is wrathful or kind or loving or all-powerful or nice or forgiving or maybe some of those things, maybe not some of those other things, it will impact how you make decisions. It will affect how you treat others. And so the question before us is pretty simple. What do we think about God? And to each of you individually, what do you think? about God. Every people in every culture and every age struggles to get this right. We struggle to see him and take him as he is and know him as he is. I don't want to say that it's worse now than ever, but I do think that it is unique, that this time is unique. For perhaps in the first time in history, God in our culture, in this age, and in many churches, he is weightless. 
God is weightless. That is the word that David Wells used, uh, former professor at Gordon-Conwell University, when he said this. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that He is ethereal, but rather that He has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. He has lost His saliency for human life. So it's not mainly today that people think God is real or unreal, just or unjust, sovereign or weak, loving or unloving. It's that whatever your thoughts of Him, they bear no weight in your lives. He bears no weight in your life. When I read Psalm 93, I immediately thought of this because this confronts this in us. We who fail to take God as He is, Psalm 93 stands and shouts and sings, this must not be. For those of you who are here today who are not Christians, you don't believe, maybe you believe in God, but you don't really have any interaction with Him, I pray that this all makes you search more deeply. Simply ask the question this morning, is God real? And should He have an impact on my life? And for those who do believe, this psalm is intended to right our hearts, to confront us and make us ask, is God the true God properly reflected in my words, my thoughts, my deeds? Do you know the real God? Or have you consulted a God, have you constructed a God that simply suits your own purposes? And lifestyle. The good news for all of us is this. There is nothing greater than to know Him as He is. The great theologian Augustine said this once. It is incomparably more satisfying to come into the slightest contact with God than to comprehend the whole universe. May we come into contact with Him even just a little bit So what should we think about God? That's where the psalm is taking us. What should we think about God? I'll give you three things. One, God is the reigning king. Two, God is the moral authority. And three, God is the loving conqueror. First, God is reigning king. He is the reigning king. How does Psalm 93 open? If you have your Bibles out in front of you, as I hope you do, how does it open? The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. One commentator says that there should be an exclamation point after that. The Lord reigns. It is very similar to the runner coming into Jerusalem in in Isaiah chapter 52, into a Jerusalem that was sad and afraid and tired. And he says with a shout to them, the Lord reigns. What is he saying? That despite all of our difficulties, despite all your hardships and enemies that surround you, there is only one God who is ruler over all. There is only one king. And is that the shout of your life? That's what the psalmist is saying. God reigns in our hearts over all things, over principalities and powers, over all kingdoms and kings, and God's govern- God is the sovereign, powerful, just king of the universe. Now, I think it's a, a tiny bit like living in a world where Superman existed, like Superman existed. 
If you lived in a world where uh, the, there was actually a guy, a man of steel, who could do all the things Superman does living in that world, when anything bad happened, any war or catastrophe or terrorist act, you would immediately think to yourself, well, Superman is here. There is nothing that can stop him. He will save the day. But Superman is not real. God is real. God has no limits. God is all-powerful. God reigns. Now, this was the foundational truth of the Israelites. We think that they sang this song. They sang Psalm 93 as they were marching up the mountain together into Jerusalem. These were the first words on their lips as they entered into worship. The first song, the first declaration, God reigns. Now, we do this too. I don't know if you notice, but we do this too in our worship. We always open by praising the King. We start with Him, never with our own needs. We begin with He who is holy and who reigns over all things. We worship Him. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper. Why does God reign? How does He reign? I think the psalmist says four things after he calls Him that God is robed in majesty. It's a beautiful image. He's robed in majesty. And he's robed in majesty in four ways. He is robed in strength, faithfulness, eternality, and love. He reigns in strength, faithfulness, eternality, and love. Let's go over each of those. God reigns in strength. God reigns in strength. Verse 1 again. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. And this is poetic language, of course. It's just helping us humans to relate to God. He has put on strength as his belt. That just means that he is strong. Now, how strong? I remember reading, there's another Superman illustration. I remember reading a, uh, an, an, a review of a movie about Superman. I can't remember which Superman movie it was. And the reviewer said, how strong is Superman exactly? Does he have any limit to his ability? Now, there is nothing nerdier than discussing the physics of superheroes, right? But as far as I can tell, it is a question without a good answer. Now, we can, though, talk more about God and his ability. How strong is God? And the answer, theologians say, is infinitely so. There is no limit to God's power. Now, how do you quantify that? It is not easy, but when I want to do something like that, if I want to try to quantify the power of God, I look to the universe. I look to space. Now, before we do that, think about the power that we have here on earth. Humans have a lot of power, and you might say that the, the greatest power we have is the nuclear bomb, right? A megaton bomb. If an asteroid comes hurtling towards earth, we know that probably the first thing we do is launch a bunch of nukes at it. That is our best shot. That is as strong as we get. And, and nuclear bombs are massively strong. But these bombs do not come close to the strongest force in our galaxy. That is reserved for the explosion of giant stars. Giant stars. Now that's compared to the sun. The sun is massive, as you know, but there are stars, some stars, that are 150 times bigger than our sun. 
And from time to time, these stars explode. They go supernova. Well, that's actually not the right word I learned this week. When a star that big explodes, they call it hypernova. Hypernova. How powerful is that blast? The blast releases as much energy in a few seconds as our sun will produce over its entire lifetime of 10 billion years. That is the same amount of energy in 10 trillion, trillion, billion megaton bombs. And yet God is somehow stronger than that. Infinitely strong. All-powerful. Sovereign. Is that how you think of your God? God reigns also in faithfulness. Verse 1, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on his strength as a belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Now, that's not a scientific statement. That's a poetic statement. And it's, a, and it's talking about the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God to uphold the world, the universe, the earth, by the power of his word. The faithfulness of God to keep the laws of nature flowing. The faithfulness of God to maintain some sense of social order and justice and morality in the world. In other words, the fact that this world does not reign in total chaos reflects His faithfulness. He is infinitely faithful. He does not get tired. He does not get bored. He does not get distracted. distracted. We who struggle with faithfulness in so many ways, does not. He lasts and he lasts. Is that what you think of your God? God reigns in eternality. Eternality. I'll talk about what that is in a second. Psalm 93.2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. All kids at some point, if they grow up in a Christian home or in any sort of home that believes in God, asks this question. All kids ask this question. Okay, if everything was created, then who created God? Who created God? And let me tell you, this is a wonderful opportunity as parents, as grandparents, as Sunday school teachers to say, God is unlike all other things, all other created things. For God was not created. God was not made. God has always existed. I want you to take three seconds and try to get your mind around that. There is no getting our minds around that. There is only worshiping. Is this what you think about your God? Eternality. God reigns finally because he is loving. And he's loving. Now, I don't have a verse for this passage. I just have the whole passage. In other words, this whole psalm is a testament to the love of of God, we must always remind ourselves when we are reading the Word of God that the only reason we are reading it is because He loves us. The only reason we are alive is because He loves us. It was His love that created us. It was His love not to abandon us and then remain with us. It was His love not to destroy us when we defamed His name and His holiness. And it is His love that now offers to us His fatherly rule. That is what this psalm is. It is the reminder that he rules, but that this is the rule, this kingship is for us. 
This kind, loving, faithful, and infinitely strong God is for us, for me, and for you. Is that what you think about your God? That this king loves you and wants to give his kingship to you, to cover you. God reigns. He reigns in strength, faithfulness, eternality, and love. And we must ask ourselves, is that our God? When we think of him, when we bring, that to, bring him to mind, do we see him as he is, set apart? And more importantly, as we move into the second point, have you submitted your life to him? Have you given him your job, your time, your sexuality, your words, your marriage, your kids? Here is the foundational truth on which we stand, the thing that we open our worship with. God reigns. God reigns. Two, God is the moral authority. God is the moral authority. If God reigns, what does this mean? What does it mean for us? How should it affect us today? How should his infinite reign affect our lives? We begin to see it in Psalm 93.5. Jump down there. Psalm 93.5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So as a result of God's reign, his infinite reign, two things should happen. Two things exist that God's decrees are trustworthy, and that holiness befits his house. And that's kind of Bible speak, so we're going to have to unpack it. But let's do the first one first, trustworthy. Trustworthy. God's decrees are trustworthy. His decree is anything that he says. Anything that he says is his decree. Anything that he's revealed to us in his scriptures is, the psalmist says, to be trusted. A decree about himself, a decree about the nature of the world, a decree about what will come to pass a decree about what should be, a decree about what you should do. God is to be trusted because He reigns. He is to be trusted because He is infinite, infinite in wisdom and faithfulness and strength and love. We know that He cannot lie, that He can also not make an error. Literally, all that He says is true. Now, that's actually not what this psalm is talking about. It's not talking about the truth that God gives us. It is talking about the trustworthiness of it, and so instantly we must enter into it. This is application. Your decrees are very trustworthy. This is how we must respond, how we must respond to Him, to His infiniteness, to His strength, to His wisdom. He is to be trusted. We are to give him our trust. We know that what he says is both good and true. And so it should not surprise us that the next phrase reads what? Holiness befits your house. This is about us. This is about we, us, coming into his house, into his kingdom. Our response to the reign of God is that we begin to live our lives in accordance with who he is. His strength, His faithfulness, His eternality, His love. So it's not surprising that the psalmist would use the word holiness there. It puts all those things together. Holiness. Peter says it this way, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
God's decrees are true. They are trustworthy. And holiness befits his house. In other words, friends, what this is saying is that we must obey him. In light of the knowledge that we have about God, the true God, we must give him our obedience. We must be humbly obedient before him, loving, reverent before him. Elizabeth Elliot, the famed missionary, wrote once, Because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and obedience. I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Love that. Now talk about it from the other side. What does your life right now say about what you think about God? That's how it should be. What does your life right now say about what you think about God? How does your life reflect God's reign? You may say to yourself, I totally believe that God is God, the reigning God. But do your actions, your words, your deeds bear this out? The struggle in this life is that we do not easily obey. We do not easily obey our parents, our bosses, our teachers, and even and especially we do not obey God. Now we might say, God, you reign, but also me. God, I believe in you, but I also believe in myself. In other words, we can live in a, in a way where God is weightless, as David Wells said, where God is there. We don't believe that he's not real, but we live as though he might as well not be there. We diminish him. We box him in. We construct a new God in accordance with how we want to live our lives. And let me tell you, that God will always end up looking like us. We, take up ending the, end, we end up taking the characteristics of God and emphasizing the ones that we like and jettisoning the ones that we don't. God's love over his wrath maybe vice versa. God's righteousness over grace, or vice versa. God's forgiveness over his justice, or vice versa. But what always ends up happening is that you end up making God into someone that always agrees with you. God never disagrees with you. I don't want you to disagree with me. Don't tell me how you think it should be. You must live in accordance with how I think it should be to a God who never rebukes me or disciplines me or asks me to sacrifice. Colin Smith puts it well. What you think about God is the clearest indicator of where your spiritual future will be. If a man or woman thinks of God only as loving and forgiving, we should not expect him or her to be too diligent in the pursuit of the moral life. If a woman or man thinks of God primarily as one who affirms everybody, it should not surprise us if he or she feels affirmed while even while she is still or he is still in her sins. If you knew God as the reigning God, how would your life change? What would you repent of? What sacrifices would you make? How would you change your parenting? How would you change how you spend your money? How would you, how would you change how you use your words? Rather than making God to fit our morals, we must make our morals to fit God. He is the moral standard. 
the moral standard by which we must live. Friends, I want us to be a people with a huge view of God, a view of God that makes us fear and love and obey, a God that we long to please. I want there to be concern in your hearts over following his word. I want you to think constantly about living in light of his will, walking in the spirit who gives us grace. Consult your Bible, your friends, your elders, your pastor. If you never wonder if you are living the life that God wants you to, I would say that you are possibly on the wrong track. Elizabeth Elliot again. When obedience to God contradicts what I think will give me pleasure, let me ask myself if I love him. God reigns over the world, and he must reign over your life. Last point. God is the loving conqueror. He is a loving conqueror. Okay, look at the middle of the psalm now, Psalm 93.3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Okay, stop there. This is super interesting. I love this section because the psalmist is essentially saying, he's, a, he's affirming, he's confirming that the world is a scary place. As beautiful as the world can be, as majestic as it can be, it can be just as dark and destructive. And there is nothing that points, honestly, more to this than the waters of the earth, the floods, the raging seas, the torrential rains. Now, the psalmist was no scientist, but he intuitively knew that the waters from floods were the most destructive forces on the earth. It was not hurricanes or earthquakes that ultimately created the Grand Canyon. It was raging waters. It is not tornadoes or snowstorms that have killed the most people. Did you know that it's floods? Out of all the natural disasters, floods kill the most people on our planet. If you want to know how dangerously powerful the world is, the psalmist says, look to the raging waters of the earth. There is nothing that exposes our fragility like a flood. Now, he does not raise this just to point to the physical realities of this earth. He's also trying to get his people to understand that there, are, there is a spiritual reality also. The ancient peoples during that time believed that there was a connection between the physical and the spiritual. The raging waters of the sea, the powerful and unpredictable forces of a flood, represented, reflected spiritual chaos and brutality. For them, there was no distinction. The seas contained monsters. The floods were the byproduct of dis discontented gods. Psalmist knows this. He knows how those ancient peoples were thinking, what they believed. And he brings it up almost to say, you're right. You are right to fear. You are right to see a spiritual connection between the physical realities of floods and the spiritual realities of this world. For this world is not the way it is supposed to be. This world is dangerous because it has fallen. This world is chaotic and brutal because of deep and widespread spiritual brokenness. And it just takes us two seconds of flipping on the news or looking into our own hearts and knowing that He is right. 
We may not think that sea creatures are out to get us. We don't think that floods are sent by impulsive God. But we know that the world is not well. As beautiful as our world is, yet it is broken and dark. We see the brokenness of our political systems, our economies, our institutions. Even in America, we have housing market crashes, chaotic political cycles, systemic injustice. And then we look inside. We see our own hope. We see the beauty that is there. It is there. But there is also darkness. We look inside and we see brokenness and chaos and sin and disobedience. The floods have lifted up. The floods are roaring. The psalmist says, add it all up. Put it all together. All the chaos, the darkness, the sin, the disobedience, as powerful as all that is, There is nothing compared to the power of the reigning God. Verse 4, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. God reigns in the face of darkness and destruction and chaos and even sin. His holiness and righteousness and power stands. And we must ask ourselves immediately, But can we? Can we with broken hearts, with sinful natures, we who have disobeyed, can we stand in the storm of His holiness and His power? We who cannot help but minimize Him, we who tend to make Him weightless, we who fail so often to obey Him, can you, with all of your sin, stand in the presence of of the God who reigns. How you answer that question is the most important thing about you. You remember the story where Jesus was with his disciples. They went out into the boat, into the sea. Jesus went and took a nap. Right as he went to sleep, a storm came up, a squall, and overtook their little fishing boat, and the disciples, who had only been with Jesus a little while, freaked out. They were terrified. They did not know what to do. They had seen that Jesus had a little bit of power, and so they ran to him. They woke him up, and they said, what should we do? Help us. Help us. And you remember Jesus goes to the front of the boat, and he speaks into the wind decisively, authoritatively, and he says, be still. And the storm snuffed out. His disciples who were terrified of the squall now looked at Jesus with even a deeper fear. Who Here is someone who has the power over the waters of the earth, the chaos and brutality of the seas. Who is this man? But they had no idea that this was a scene, this was a story that would point forward to a much more important storm where he, where Jesus would still the storms finally completely of chaos and sin and death. Our sin, our death, our disobedience. On the cross, Jesus endured our storm and in his resurrection, he defeated it. 
He defeated the sin in our hearts. And if you now believe in Him, you are found in Him. If you believe in Him, you are covered by Him. You are being healed by Him. You are being helped to trust Him and obey Him. You who believe are one with the reigning God of the universe. Who is Jesus? Philippians 2 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that every name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What do you believe about Jesus? This is the most important thing about you. Hear his voice. Hear him speaking to you. You are his child. May you make him your God, your Savior, your friend. Let's pray. God, we stand now, we sit now, we rest now that we may hear you. That we may hear your voice echoing in the storm of life, be still. That is your voice that is echoing, that is reverberating in our hearts. You have taken what was broken. You have taken the egregious sins that we have committed against you. And you have allowed them to be nailed into your flesh, into your soul. You took them upon yourself. That God's wrath may be satisfied, that his justice may finally be put out, and that we may receive our pardon. God, may we hear that. Be still. And may we see now with new eyes your glory, your glory that you received again as you rose to new life, defeating death and sin, raising us up with you. God, our main problem is that we do not make you king. We do not make Jesus king of our lives. And so we cry out to you, oh, yet again, oh, Father, May we make you king. May there be no limit to the thoughts that we think about you. You who reign supreme in strength and faithfulness, eternality and life. God bless us now. Be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen.